At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose joining me for The Bigger Picture today. For the last time this year is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So, uh, Mike, we are recording this in a time with, uh, uh, when the nurses' strike has just started. Um, uh, yes. You know, the run-up to Christmas does seem to be full of what uh, rather... The phrase has always puzzled me, industrial action. Yes, and this is the first time in the RCNs, the Royal College of Nurses, a uh, hundred and something year history that nurses have ever got walked out on strike and the first time in the ever in the history of the National Health Service. So it's, it is a it is a, a landmark moment. It's taking place against the backdrop of, of a winter of industrial unrest. I haven't I can't quite bring myself to call it the winter of discontent just yet because we haven't quite seen rubbish piling up in the streets we haven't quite seen bodies going unburied yet but it's certainly causing a fair amount of disruption full disclosure i i'm mm. needing to take a train this afternoon and i'm having to do this other day because of uh mick lynch and uh yes. rmt and aslev strikes as well so the industrial unrest is having an impact but, but i think even at the, t- the height of the winter of discontent um nurses were still working and the backdrop to this is as with many organizations is that the, the nurses are seeking a just under 20% pay rise. This is to do with the unprecedented cost of living pressures. I find it very hard to believe that they will derive any comfort from what the government suggests, they, that the, the rate of inflation has fallen by 0.4% from over 11% down to 10.7%. I'm still at a 40-year high. But the context of this is that we are in the highest level of uh, pressure uh, time of year for the NHS. The winter pressures are undoubtedly weighing heavily on A&E wards. Uh, there is undoubtedly a staffing crisis as well. So nurses are at a premium and they are the heavy lifters in the National Health Service. There is no doubt about that. As, as important as doctors are, nurses are the ones who, particularly over the last 10 years, have increasingly done more work that would normally be done by doctors, junior doctors on, on the wards. The other side of this is that, obviously, the National Health Service itself is still dealing with the huge backlog from the pandemic, too, that there are lots of people still waiting for treatment, not cancer treatments, waiting times are still at a record high. And this is not, I would say, this is not a cut and dry issue if, I, if I'm prepared to defend the railway uh, workers' right to strike and, and train drivers' right to strike. I can certainly justify industrial action on behalf of the nurses Mm. but i've seen i find myself increasingly intrigued by pat cullen who's the general secretary of the rcn and its chief executive as well Uh, there was a wonderful whoever her pr team are doing an excellent job there was a picture of her 
on the front page of one of the newspapers wearing her nurse's get up with, with, with the little watch that they all have as well, looking mm. very much a sort of matronly image too. But of course, look, we mustn't forget that the as much as, you know, we can praise nursing staff for the rafters, most of the staff don't want veneration and, and Pat Cullen is playing a very a very clever game but I would say like all trade union leaders at this particular point in time she's playing quite a dangerous game as well in the sense that there was polling done the other day about industrial action on, on the railways they found that roughly 47% of people supported the industrial action I suspect with nurses it would probably be a bit higher than that on the trains and in terms of who to blame it was most of it fell on the government 40% but a, a short number behind that just fell on the unions and we mustn't forget that the last time that there was significant industrial unrest in this country the trade unions had their wings substantially clipped by the government of the day they lost the public goodwill quite easily now mm. the circumstances I would say are not entirely dissimilar to the 1970s in the sense that we have record high inflation and pay offers are, are repeatedly on the table and I don't envy the task of, of the Sunak government having to negotiate with this and, and, and Pat Cullen levelled an accusation against Steve Barclay the health secretary that calling him a bully boy saying you didn't want to meet with her because she, essentially she was a woman representing a largely female workforce mm. I find that claim not knowing anything of the of the 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 ins and outs of it to be a slightly uh, spurious one, given the fact that the health secretary is probably following the same line as all of his other cabinet colleagues are in the sense yes. that he is not engaging with it and, and to level that kind of accusation of sexism without substantial evidence is i think unwise at this time but it it may, it may very well be true but there's no, there's no i've not seen any basis for it. But the, the the context of this is that we now have one of the most visible parts of the UK uh, brand, if you will. Sort of the NHS is now there is now big questions over whether or not there will be sufficient emergency cover, sufficient medical cover at a time when wards are already struggling. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, let's face it, it wasn't working before. We've even had for the first time the shadow health secretary. Uh, Absolutely, saying that it isn't working. He's on a waiting waiting list. Clearly, getting fed up. I mean, it would be nice to think that finally politicians could get round their heads together and think it isn't working and ask why. And and whatever you think about the rights or wrongs of nurses going on strike, there is no doubt that in this country we pay nurses abominably badly compared. Now, we're not talking about an organisation that is short of money. If you're a manager or a consultant or you're the agency staff brought in because the NHS has been managed so badly, who get paid absolutely enormously, why is it still the case that the people that everybody respects, the doctors and the nurses, do, particularly the nurses, do so badly compared to these people who are getting paid astronomical sums for mismanaging? Well, quite right. And I think, look, we have to draw attention to the fact that you know, the statistic earlier this week from Labour showed that the government is spending billions of pounds just on agency doctors as well. And this yeah. is often the case that many people are actually either leaving the NHS to go and work abroad, certainly the case of junior doctors, places like Australia. The average salary for a junior doctor, by the way, is £28,000, which is considerably lower than the average salary of this country of 34. If a, a nurse is earned less than that, starting salary is less than 20. And even then, if even if it becomes, say, a nursing practitioner, which is the highest level of um, 
nursing grade that there is. And don't forget, many of them have to go to university now, 34 degrees, whereas yeah, they used to be yeah. learning on the job. The nursing bursary has been a big political football over the last couple of years. They could maybe expect to earn about £40,000. Now, that may sound like a lot of money, but given the amount of work that they do, I don't think anybody would dispute that we should be paying uh, more competitive rates of pay would be one key element of the government's workforce planning here. So let, let's break it down into just to, just long. Everyone, everyone talks on this is West Streeting, this is the government, this is anybody in the NHS talks about long term workforce planning and uh, prediction. There was an excellent report I can commend people to have a look at here. The reason this is worth reading about is that the author, Bill Morgan, who's a former healthcare lobbyist, has gone into advisor Rishi Sunak in government shortly after writing it that set out the political. Um, landscape, if you will, around healthcare uh, workforce planning. And there, there is a simple recognition that there are there are some a number of complicated solutions that the government could employ, all of which are comparatively difficult. The issue has to be, first and foremost, it's not just one of resource, although that has got to be it too. There is also an issue of the fact that we do not make enough use of overseas um, staff in terms of long-term workforce planning and the government as i speak is actually drafting a short medium and long-term workforce plan over the next 5 10 15 years there's also a certain innate resistance in, in morgan's report he argues from the treasury because they want to ensure that the uh, resources are not wasted they want to ensure there is a slight undersupply in the workforce to ensure that they're not overly committing resources to the NHS that don't need to be spent and from a fiscal perspective you could understand that but ultimately, one of the main reasons is that there is, I think, going to be a need for, in the same reason that roughly about seven, eight years ago, the NHS long-term plan was produced, an independent body with the, the resources and the ability to predict what workforce, you know, this isn't just about, just about doctors and nurses. Full disclosure, I work for, the, as, for a healthcare company now, and I do a lot of work in the dental space. Dentists are, there's an incredible shortage of dentists and there's a number of complicating factors around that because dentists, for example, are self-employed. There are things like a shortage of consultant anesthetists across the NHS as well. I could go on. If this isn't, we focus on hospitals in the NHS, both as a public mm. and as a political space and as a administrative side to our detriment. Actually, Mike, we should be looking I, at getting more people into primary and secondary care and community care as well. I think there's a drop. The problem is we could have, be having this sort of conversation last year, the year before probably five years ago or even 10 years ago. And it, nobody seems able to actually tackle everything. I mean, it's got to the stage now where it's got to be tackled. The Conservatives, presumably, if they try and do absolutely anything, will be accused of privatising the the NHS in, in some way. But it has got to the stage where one's almost ashamed at the state of the NHS compared to most other comparable countries. Um I mean, is this not a case for getting all parties together? And we, I, I, I was surprised that did not happen when the pandemic hit. One would have thought that would have been a very sensible thing to do. But it, it doesn't seem as if parliamentarians are able to rise above party politics for the good of the country. Or am I being unduly idealistic here? I, I think that we have to recognise that the government is in its 13th year now in office. It, it is essentially running out of ideas. Yeah. And I don't wish to be unkind to the Conservatives. I do believe that... At the moment, there are many people who, who sincerely want to fix the NHS, want to make it work well, and they have to do this very tricky balancing act of saying, you know, we haven't got the resources to deliver at the moment. And against the backdrop, 
throwing money at the NHS is is not always the answer because it just gets gobbled up. The simple fact is that in terms of cash resources, in terms of actual people working in the NHS, they're actually seeing less people. So it isn't just a case of just putting more resources. It is, it is a case of looking at how the system works overall. Now, we have had two major restructures of the NHS under the Tories. We've just had the move to integrated care systems, as they're called, which were designed to create what was called place-based care, which essentially were 42 regions across England where local where local public services were through local government were joined up with the National Health Service. It sounds very good on paper. These are just coming on stream at this point in time. We have, I, I won't wang on too much about systemic reform of the NHS, but one of the things that Bill Morgan identified in his report as being a barrier to uh, workforce changes that are needed, and this includes things like planning and retention and training across the whole piece, mm. was actually systemic reforms of the edges because we, we could become so concerned with the overall wiring i'd argue actually instead of looking at what's called the producer interest which is the number of nurses going into the edges or rather than looking at the under uh, at the at the source of the funding or the overall wiring, we need to bring it back to patient outcomes again we need to be looking at what needs to happen to get patient outcomes better than these that means things like getting cancer waiting times down improving mental health waiting lists it means going back to a few focused key metrics improving oral health outcomes as well they, we i did an assessment of this my work today and i found out that the uk we spend the lowest on oral health per capita public or private in the g7 and have the lowest oral health workforce in the g7 as well now of course more money doesn't necessarily mean better outcomes but in terms of lost economic output we were losing like eleven thousand million dollars as a result of the five main oral health diseases the simple fact is that unless we pivot more to prevention and make better use of things like technology and genomic science we are not going to have a health system that works yes and and carrying that on of course the number of people who are now not able to work because they are ill and waiting to get treated has an economic uh, effect Mm. on the country as well I mean, it's this incredible short-sighted thinking that it's just, well, it's not just me, I'm sure, is exasperating absolutely everybody. Lack of uh, investment in sensible infrastructure. I mean, nothing is joined up anymore. I find myself more and more using the word cacistocracy, which I don't think I even knew three or four years ago. <laughs> Government by it's the least competent the or year, suitable. Think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, who would disagree? And I, I, don't I think can't say I'm necessarily remarkably... I don't necessarily say, as, as you have pointed out many times, Labour don't exactly seem to be brimming full of, of ideas that to fill us with hope either. Mike, let's move on from, from this. I wish I could say to anything more cheerful, um, <laughs> but, but let us just take a brief pause and then we'll talk about something else. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Simon Reyes, you're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. Um, you're obviously hoping for some Christmas cheer, but I'm not sure that Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Gratuitancy blog, is going to give us very much of that. Where are we going to turn our attention next, Mike? 
Well, we've talked a little bit about the industrial action that's happening across the country, and obviously that's a very important part of what's going on. But unfortunately, there has been, uh, and again, I, I, I say this, there has been news of other things coming out from inside government that are we have to look at one of the things that we should pay attention to is the fact that the deputy prime minister and justice secretary dominic raab has has been subject to five more complaints about internal complaints about his conduct when he was previously at that department under the latter part of the boris johnson government for those people who are struggling to keep track of it he had a few months out in between when liz truss was and and johnson were having their sort of political turmoil but, but allegations about Dominic Raab's behaviour amounting to bullying from, from officials have, have, are part of a wider trend that several have seen several senior cabinet ministers against each um, of the prime ministers that we've had since 2019, de- apparently treating their officials quite badly. Now, I, I have to declare biased here. I am uh, I am engaged to a civil servant. She, you know, she. I have friends who are civil servants, so I am. I'm quite happy to admit that I am, relatively speaking, very quite pro civil service. And I, and I, I dealt with our model as a journalist and lobbyist over the years, and I found that having a non part, a non partisan official system for keeping things going over with with political direction from the top, I believe, works quite well as a system of government. I think actually it's one of the reasons why, given the political turmoil that we've had since 2016 and even uh, before then that actually the civil service model does work well if we compare it to, say, to the American model where we have all all political appointees look at what happened under Donald Trump and vacancies couldn't be filled. Uh, civil servants, of course, are another party that's going straight. That isn't to say the model doesn't have its flaws, that ministers aren't always frustrated by it, that having a permanent bureaucracy doesn't breed an innate conservatism with a small C. I think it does all of these things. But you, you have seen, certainly over the last year, that dynamic ministers like Michael Gove, being a great example, can get things done. And this is why I think we also have to remember that ministers, although they have less job security than the civil servants, they do have the option of having the pulpit. They are ultimately the senior decision makers in the department and they do enjoy an immense degree of control. But one of the things that I think has been a symptom of the post-Brexit landscape, and this goes back to Michael Gove's comments of we've had enough of experts, is this government, I think, has felt certain members of this government, I should say, have felt that they can treat officials quite badly. And I think if we look at this, for example, this goes all the way from, say, the allegations that Robert Jemrick faced about uh, sitting next to a donor at a dinner, the way his officials warned him and he ignored it, all the way through to most probably most infamously Pretty Patel and the allegations of bullying, which saw the former permanent secretary of her department bring an employment tribunal case that was settled out of court in the end. But Dominic Raab is someone who has had allegations levelled at him and it's, it's in the same vein as Priti Patel here. It's that sense that a lot of people clearly feel that his style of management is difficult. Now, I'm sure we've all worked with people who are Marmite characters, who are, we would say, demanding bosses and are frank in their views as well. Mm-hmm. But the way I look at it is that I think if you have a fairly good idea, I say this is someone who's you know, been subject to workplace bullying himself, has, has experienced it secondhand too, it can be quite subtle and it often look people i think intrinsically people do know if they're behaving unreasonably people will try and, if they can get away with that is challenged that sort of robust behavior when not checked then it can spill over into overt bullying as well and this may be and i speculate entirely here there's nothing that's been proven as dominic rob he robustly denies the allegations he is defending his name 
you can see how this could happen, particularly in a system which puts as much power and influence as you do as being a cabinet minister as well. That is to say that there are certain things like Dominic Raab that have emerged from this that have shown him to be a slightly odd individual. For example, the story he doesn't like tomatoes in his salad, the fact that he insisted when he was foreign secretary on having a couple of hours in the gym block booked out each day, according to his diary. Some of these people are coming in, of course, from private sector backgrounds, quite things where they may and effectively as the minister even a junior minister you have an immense degree of control you have an immense degree of influence you have a private office that answers to you but that must come with a sense of humility as well because the people that work with you particularly in your private office and around you are likely to be young they're also likely to also be in your corner particularly obviously there will be competing interests but I think Dominic Raab has to reflect on the fact that there are a number of complaints that have come out against him and don't forget we have that rather bizarre tweet from a few years ago that went out from the UK Civil Service account, which was then deleted, which says, can you imagine working for these truth twisters? Which I think it's, it's not unfair to say that the relationship between the government and the civil service has deteriorated over the last years, certainly since Brexit. And to give an idea of how inconsistent this government has been since it's been office of the civil service, they came in into office in 2010, committed to shrinking the Whitehall uh, footprint under Francis Maud. Then they opted for Brexit, which meant they had to increase the civil service workforce again and doing all the cuts they've made. And then the pandemic happened. And then they made a decision earlier this year, particularly during the Conservative leadership elections, to make the civil service a political football and to say they'd cut it again. Now, I, I'm not saying that governments can't change their mind and shape, shape Whitehall to suit their needs. But even a seasoned Conservative observer must admit that this behaviour towards the Whitehall machine is erratic as well. Uh, my favourite example of this was the fact that the government insisted all civil servants had to go back into the office full time in Whitehall, and yet they'd sold off so much of the office space in the early parts of the coalition years as well. So ministers don't always know best. And I think to some extent they have to accept and trust their officials around them. Yes, challenge them when they need to be. But that also means, as in any organisation, considering how your behaviour impacts others. Even if you don't think you're being a bully, consider if enough people are talking about it loud enough, maybe you need to really reconsider how you treat those around you. Yes. And the world is not like a bully. I, mean, I keep thinking of that sort of James Corden story in the, in the restaurant. I mean, there's no... Yes. There's no justification at all if you're in a position of power. But as we both know, and as you said, um, you know, frequently you end up working with people who abuse their position. Often, I feel, from a position of insecurity. Anyway, we haven't got very long um, left, Mike. Do you you want to look back at the year? I don't know. Many people want to look back at this year, but I feel we should. It is worth looking back. What's the Oasis song, uh, Don't Look Back in Anger? That they say uh, uh, this. This has been. A, uh, I mean, Simon, you, you and I have been fortunate enough to be talking regularly since before the referendum. We together, we've done some fairly extraordinary years on this podcast. Even as far as as far as years go, this this politics continues to surprise me. And I, I, my my mum's very fond of reminding me, and I know she listens to this as well. So hello, mum. That the these years are you know, what extraordinary times we live in and bear in mind that you know, my, my parents growing up during the 60s and 70s you know these, these were also quite unprecedented times but yeah. i mean look we could do the numbers i'm sure we could do something like you know 12 years of tory government 11 housing ministers you know 10 attempts at uh 
I, I shan't. I have 10 billion pounds spent on furlough. I haven't tried scripted this out. I decided it wasn't <laughs> worth trying to do a forced Christmas metaphor. Yes. But th- let's just look at the top of the government. So the, the three prime ministers we've had this year, three years ago, the Tories had, had looked politically secure. They had a very sizable majority, not quite a landslide, but certainly a size of the majority that would allow them to govern in theory without being challenged. A large cohort of new MPs representing seats that they'd never really taken before and a prime minister who had a uniquely uh, controversial, yes, but recognisable personal personal brand. Three years later, all of those advantages have been wasted and you can point to events. Yes, you can point to the pandemic. Yes, you can point to the war in Ukraine. But what we have to accept that this year has taught us is that the Conservative Party is on a very dangerous bent in the direction it is going. When it first came in in 2010, at least we could understand the direction that David Cameron and Nick Clegg wanted to take. These were people who were committed to a smaller state, essentially sort of reheated Thatcherites, people who had a deep sense that they wanted to serve the country for public service. Probably naive, I would say, rather than corrupt corrupt. Uh, the last three years, we have seen a prime minister sanctioned by law and forced to resign by his own party. We've seen the shortest premiership in history implode after after another yet near miss for the UK economy, but this time entirely self-inflicted by some bizarre desire to, t- to cut taxes at a time when we're moving into a recession, which most economists don't think is a smart move. And a man who most people had written off as a political loser emerge as the prime minister, a man who hasn't found his own voice, but has to his credit, I think, to give Rishi Sunak's thing, grasped the nettle and made some difficult decisions. Equally, we've also seen the Labour Party's fortunes go from being in the doldrums. A year ago, the the average polling, they were dead level with the Conservatives. In the last year, the Conservatives, firstly under Boris Johnson, then accelerated by Liz Truss, have trashed their own brand and left Rishi Sunak, who is also partly to blame for this. He sat around the cabinet table for most of the last three years as well. And Jeremy Hunt with the chance of picking up this sort of shattered Ming vase. I'm not sure, I'm sure if the government is trying to carry a Ming vase across the black ice that's currently outside my house at the moment. I think it's more a case that they, they have fallen over and that their hands are now cut to bloody pieces by the shattered pottery of their reputation. And yet it is still not inconceivable that this government will manage to find some form of words and ways to convince people to keep them in power in 2024. All I would say to people is this. Remember what has happened in the last 12 months. Remember the turmoil the Conservative Party is going through. And please consider whether or not you want to have another term of this in 2024 as well. This is not a party political point. It's a simple fact that all governments, after a certain period of time in office, become tired, they become worn out, and they become in need of a rest and a reset. This government has reached that point now. That means if you're not convinced by Labour, uh... (laughs) then you can turn to that. Yes, I think the population need a rest and a reset, Mm. frankly. Yes, (laughs) Mike, thank you very much. Thank you for all your contributions in 2022. Let's hope we can at least find some more optimistic things to look forward to in 2023, but I'm not holding my breath. Anyway, confidence of the season to you and um, yours. Congratulations on your engagement. And uh, we will be back with more from The Bigger Picture and Mike Indian, uh, author of the Gratia Tennessee blog, in uh, the new year. The Bigger Picture. 
going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.